Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Baresson. I'm Khadija Goodwatkin. So we're two child and adolescent psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And today we're going to talk about alcohol and adolescence, what to look for, when to worry, and what to do when it comes to concerns about alcohol and other drugs. And today we have a special guest to help us shrink it down uh, and make sense of it all. And as you know, shrinking it down is mental health made simple. It's, 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 it's actually not simple at all. But, but John will help us try to make it simple so that you can understand what's going on. So welcome, John. Jane, thank you. It's great to be here with you. So John Kelly, Dr. Kelly, is Program Director of the Recovery Research Institute here at MGH, Associate Director of MGH Center for Addiction Medicine, and the Elizabeth R. Spallin Professor of Psychiatry in the field of addiction medicine at Harvard Medical School. Impressive. He's past president of the American Psychological Association of Addiction Psychology. He served as consultant to a, a number of U.S. federal agencies. Uh, he's an active researcher who focuses on addiction treatment and the recovery process, a licensed clinical psychologist who actively works with individuals and families with alcohol and other drugs disorders. You know, John's been invited. I think, John, you're the only person I know who's been invited both to the U.S. Congress and to Parliament. So you, you cross the pond. Um, uh, but most importantly, he's a phenomenal musician, uh, a professional in a prior life, but currently a, a, a very active one, um, producing wonderful songs and translations and arrangements. I mean, he's done, he does all the instruments himself. And for those of you who might want to check him out, please check out anythingbutthetruth.com. Tell me no lies. And his new album uh, is really awesome. I downloaded it this this week. It's really cool. Um, I, I have his previous album, but this is kind of a really cool new project that he's in. Uh, so we're pleased to have him here today. And um, I know it's going to be a great conversation. I wish you had your guitar so you could kind of answer some of the questions <laughs> <laughs> in song. Don't tempt me. But before we get started, let's start off with our own uh, mental health check. Uh, Khadija, how's the past week been for you? The past week has actually been pretty good. I'm on the path of still kind of managing my commitments and not committing to things that are not important or that make me feel good. Uh, It's a process because it really has me kind of trying to grapple with like feeling like I'm disappointing people, but it, it has made like the days feel so much better. Um, and so it's like a work in progress, but I am loving this journey on week two. <laughs> so so I, I'll have more to say maybe, you know, week 12, um, but, it, but it's been a good week overall. Yeah. And so I will um, pass this on to John. How, how has your week been? Pretty good. Thanks, Khadija. Um, of course, I was super excited about coming on Drinking It Down um, with you guys. So that that's been been a I've been looking forward to this, um, and um, yeah, I've been feeling some uh, negative reinforcement, as they say, um, which is I just got a whole bunch of grant reviews done, which I had to do 
so that takes, <clears throat> uh, I'm on one of these review committees. So every, every three months I have to review a whole bunch of grants, which is a lot of work, a lot of extra work. And uh, so I'm just out from under of that. So that feels really good to have that, that burden lifted and to be done again for, for another few months. So I'm feeling some levity there, um, but um, delighted to be here with you all. I feel like I need to get an autograph before you leave all of the, the, the music that you and Gene were talking about. Uh, <laughs> well, check, check out his album. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, uh, and uh, I guess it's my turn. I'm uh, sure we've been like, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's been interesting. I, 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 it's been a really busy week. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I had two kind of last weekend and this into this weekend, I had two meaty interviews that require a lot of thought and commentary. I mean, one was on what's called restraint uh, collapse. That's what kids are kind of holding it together and holding it together and holding it together. And then they come home and they melt down. What's that all about? And the second one was on fear of the dark, which I'm afraid of the dark, but I mean, kids are generally afraid of the dark and and it's 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 it was pretty cool to write about that but the thing that i think was the my high point in the last week is that you know i've been studying piano with uh you know fortunately ben cook who who, who plays for the pops and teaches at berkeley and um and i've been in i mean trying to learn jazz it's kind of you know from the styles of music that i've i play kind of fluidly it's like learning, trying to learn like a different language, like like learning Chinese. But I, I think I made a bit of a breakthrough this week. And I, and Sunday, I spent like six hours at the piano, just kind of like going over like what it's like to play bebop and trying to channel my favorite bebop musicians. And I actually, I actually got someplace <laughs> as opposed to stalling out. So I, I feel, I feel good about that. I'm not ready for prime time by any means. <laughs> Anyway, let's talk about booze. <clears throat> I think all of us in different capacities as clinicians have worked with young people who've struggled with substance misuse, including alcohol. Uh, and probably, you know, over my, career, over my career, 40 years, I mean, I think alcohol has been the most consistent and common one. Although in recent years, you know, with the introduction of other substances like you know, cannabis and Molly and, you know, which is MDMA uh, and others. Uh, it, but, but alcohol has really been, particularly for teenagers, in my view, kind of the most accessible and the most commonly abused. We can hear about more of this. Uh, so uh, let me ask John. John, don't, do, why should parents care about this? Do most teenagers experiment with alcohol at some point? Yeah, great question. Um, and uh, I know a very, very, very important one. As you said, you know, the landscape is changing, isn't it? Um, politically, socially, regarding the introduction of other substances into the marketplace, as well as broader culture and accessibility. Um, but why should parents care about alcohol? It's because 75% of all addiction cases in the United States are alcohol addiction. So three quarters of all addiction cases are alcohol. And the burden of disease, disability, premature mortality is immense. Um, we hear a lot, of course, sadly, about opioids these days because of the 
overdose risk and mortality rates that have been rising for the last 20 years, which is tragic and unnecessary. But um, what we don't, because this, this is not headline news, we are almost uh, inured, you know, used to the, the impact. We're kind of willing to absorb the, the casualties from alcohol into the social fabric uh, of society. We're kind of used to that. Uh, so it doesn't make headline news, but we are talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths attributable to alcohol every year in the United States alone. 3.3 million worldwide kills 10 times more than all illicit drugs combined. And but John, just, yeah. so what do these deaths due to? I mean, are they, are they generally due to, uh, to combining it with other drugs, to, to, uh, to alcohol intoxication, to like driving drunk and accidents. I mean, like what, what, what's the lay of the land here? Because, you know, the, the mythology is, you know, oh, the kids will have a few beers and they'll just, you know, like drink a bottle of a little bit of vodka in their room and stuff like that. But I, I think what you said is very, very striking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, it's important to remember there are three pathways through which substances cause harm. I think one of the things with, with alcohol, because it's legal, because it's the domesticated drug, uh, people, we don't often think about it as a drug, as a psychoactive drug that causes addiction. Um, it's interesting. I was over in the UK recently, and I, I sometimes get migraines on airplanes, and I, I picked up an over-the-counter uh, box of um, headache pills that was had codeine in it. And on the front of the box, it says, uh, warning, this may cause addiction. Uh, and I was struck by that. I thought, well, that's interesting, isn't it, that... That's on the front front of the box there with of, of this mix of codeine and paracetamol. And this may cause addiction, but we don't have that on alcohol containers. You know, it's, it's a question, why not? Why don't we have when 75% of addiction cases are caused by alcohol? In other words, as a society, we're willing to kind of overlook that. Because uh, as I said, it's the kind of the domesticated drug. It's it's the, we don't like to think of it because many of us consume it. In a, in a social in a social way, and it can be a social lubricant, and culturally it's culturally embedded. Um, but it is a drug. We should never forget that it is a drug. It causes intoxication, of course. We we we're pretty clear on that. Um, like other drugs, it causes psychological impairment, accidents, injuries. It can cause toxicity-related illness, notably uh, liver disease and cancer. A lot of people don't know about the cancer risk with alcohol. Uh, alcohol causes uh, several different types of cancer, esophageal cancer, the mouth, the, the throat, larynx, pharynx, voice box, uh, stomach, GI tract, um, colon, and liver, and breast in women. We don't have to drink very much, actually, to increase the risk of cancer with, with alcohol. So there's toxicity, there's intoxication, and there's the one that we normally default to, which is addiction or alcohol use disorder. But you don't have to be addicted to alcohol to die from it. You don't have to be addicted to opioids, to overdose from opioids, of course. Um, So um, intoxication can be just drinking too much. We hear every single day about kids drinking too much and dying, just not waking up, just like opioids. It'll uh, shut down uh, your, your ability to breathe uh, if you drink enough and you'll die. Um, 
And uh, there are about 5,000 young people that die exactly that way every year in the United States. Uh, a lot of deaths come from uh, just accidents, people falling down the stairs, crashing their car, getting into fights, all due to alcohol. <clears throat> and then there's the alcohol use disorder, the alcohol addiction piece, um, which has its roots in adolescence. So those 75% of addiction cases I mentioned uh, that accounts for the vast majority of addiction in this country start in adolescence. 50% of people who are addicted begin before the age of 15, 80% uh, before the age of 18. Now, those what that can do... Those numbers are... Mm -hmm. Now, I'm just going to say those numbers are just astounding. Like, I think alcohol, like you said, is such a commonplace drug that, that is used in so many different settings. And to hear how 75% is huge. Yeah, yeah. Now, part of that is, you know, it. we know that the developing brain, of course, uh, we've learned this in the last 30 years, how susceptible the developing brain is to insult and injury, and it can have lifelong ramifications, as well as genetic ramifications, epigenetic ramifications. What I mean by that is that what happens to us in our life course can turn on or turn off certain genes in our genome that places us at greater or lesser risk for certain diseases and disorders. And exposure to alcohol at a younger age can turn on those genes that wouldn't otherwise be turned on. When you look epidemiologically at the rates of alcohol addiction, alcohol use disorder, for example, for people who start begin to drink before the age of 15, the rates of alcohol use disorder are about 25%. For people who drink, start drinking at the legal age, at age 21, the rates of about four, are about 4%. So basically, you don't get it if you actually wait until the legal age. There's a reason why the later exposure is better for, for human beings, because it doesn't affect the brain in a way or the genome in a way that it does when we're younger. So it's important to, for parents to understand that this is a very serious drug that is psychoactive, that causes intoxication, causes toxicity and addiction, and uh, so to treat it with respect and, and to, to treat it seriously. So, John, you... With, with so many things out there that, that these kids kind of can get entangled with in terms, like in addition to alcohol, so there are nicotine products and um, prescribed medications that really aren't prescribed to them, like some of the narcotics and the stimulants, and then not to mention the illicit drugs that, that they're taking off of the streets. How, how, do, we, how do we see these substances if you could speak to impacting the developing brain differently or, or similarly, like what, what are we seeing as it relates to substance use in, the, in kids with the different substances? Mm. Yeah, great question, yeah. Well, you know, again, different substances will have different effects and at different times in different people. Um, so that it's complex, as, as we say, you know, in, in psychiatry, of course, this is a complex illness. It's like all psychiatric illness, complex. It's a matter of interaction between exposure in, in, the, in, 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 the, in the realm of substance use disorders. It's exposure to the drug multiplied by other stress and genetics and biology. Uh, so it's a kind of a dynamic psychobiological epigenetic phenomenon certain substance and, and the toxicity is in the dose also so a little bit of something is not going to do you great harm 
But the, 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 the bigger the dose, the more harm, and the more you repeat it, the more harm. The, the risks of, of different substances, um, there, are, there are different risks of different substances. Of course, things like cannabis, we've learned even more starkly, we've known this for a long time, for example, marijuana, um, which I think a lot of youth today are turning more towards marijuana and away from alcohol because they see alcohol as being their parents' stuff. And what they're reading on the internet is that alcohol is bad, which it is, uh, and marijuana is healthy. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of healthy and it's, uh, it's herbal and it's, you know, it, it's got all these kind of desirable, that's what they're learning. Um, now, very sadly and unfortunately, uh, we're seeing rates of early exposure. Don't forget, for legal consumption, you have to be 21. Again, earlier you, you get exposed, the human brain is exposed, the, the higher the risk for adversity, including psychosis. And, um, you know, very close to home, one of my nephews actually became psychotic and is still psychotic from early exposure to marijuana. So has been uh, on antipsychotic meds now and uh, very severely disturbed through early exposure to, uh, to, to marijuana. So it can uh, induce um, psychosis that can be semi-permanent or permanent. Um, so that's one particular risk attributable to, to, to marijuana. Alcohol has different effects. Um, opioids, again, have different types of effects as do other stimulants. So it depends on, on, the, on the type of drug, the class of drug, the dose, the level of exposure, the intensity of exposure, all these things affect these things. But in general, you know, if you can delay onset, it's better. If, if people are engaging in substances, the lower the exposure, the better. Thanks, John. So, you know, one, one thing that's a little paradoxical to me, um, and I wouldn't have to go through all the research, but there have been a number of studies uh, monitoring the future, um, among others, that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that um, has shown that, for example, in teens, um, well, first of all, we, among adults, it seems is that the use of substances increased during COVID across the board. Um, but but there have been some studies that have shown that there have been dramatic decreases in use of alcohol in teens, younger adolescents, and even in college students. Um, but 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 in college students, that that there's been an increase, for example, in use of of cannabis. But given the fact that there's a national um, you know a crisis in you know mental health uh, for youth. How do you understand these studies about their decreasing use of alcohol? Has there been an increase in other substances, or 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 are they just kind of like, you know, uh, not following in the footpaths of their parents? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, there's a couple of confounding, a couple of influential factors here. One is the first of all, there's COVID, the effects of COVID on social structure, social context, and social interaction. That has had a big effect on young people's drinking because uh, young people typically drink in social groups or in social settings. So when, when that's been restricted, that has meant that the contexts in which young people generally are exposed to and drink heavily has been minimized. So that's actually had a, had a dampening effect on alcohol use. 
Now, another big factor, independent of COVID, has been the increased medicalization and now legalization and commercialization of marijuana. But this has been a trend that's been going on, of course, simultaneously during COVID. Um, so, you know, independent of COVID, is COVID's probably had a dampening effect on the rise in marijuana use among young people. If it wasn't for COVID, I would expect that to even be higher, those rates of marijuana. Um, but it's interesting with the, that's one group where we've seen reductions in alcohol use is, is young people. Uh, you're right, Gene, you know, the, we've seen these general increases in rates of use, um, heavy use. People who drink alone in particular, we've seen rates of increased use there, much higher rates of increases. For people who drink predominantly in social settings and social contexts, we generally see a flattening or a decrease, including among young people, because the social setting is the primary, the primary stimulus for, uh, for drinking and heavy drinking. So now when, when not, not that COVID is going to ever go away, uh, but, but when, when things lighten up more as they are increasingly, and we see more social groups, we see more concerts, we see more, you know, young people getting together um, in various settings, do you expect that there will be some kind of a rebound or a, a surge uh, in use of, of, of substances. I mean, these kids have missed out on social interactions in so many different ways. Um, but one of them has been kind of getting high together. Yeah, yeah. I would expect it to go back, yeah. I would expect it to go back. I can't see any reason why it wouldn't, why people would not return to, and, and maybe even there might even be a, you know, a temporary, you know, celebratory, you know, over the topness of, of getting back together in, in social settings and social uh, contexts for younger people in particular that can be dangerous. Um, but I would expect the general trend to return to, we're going to see, in other words, I predict over the next five years, you take away COVID, you'll see a return, maybe an increase um, temporarily of um, heavy alcohol use and, and alcohol use among young people. And, and just to follow up on that, um, you know, the Surgeon General, among um, other groups, have uh, have claimed prop appropriately that we're in the midst of a mental health crisis among youth, that there's increased depression, anxiety, stress, loneliness, uh, suicide attempts. And so what my con question is, is that uh, given that, and that began pre-COVID, so that, 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 that these issues that young people are having about the economy and climate change and, you know, um, racism, sexual harassment, you name it, um, they're not a happy, they're not a happy group. Uh, and, and, and maybe it's kind of simple-minded on my part to be taken when people are not happy, they may turn to substances. So I'm just wondering whether you... I don't know. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but apart from the celebratory actions of kids and young young adults, are you concerned that they may turn to substances to kind of compensate for their uh, for their other psychiatric and mental health problems? Yeah, I mean, I think you know that's a great point. It's kind of the flip side of the dark side of of of, of that impact um, of um, 
you know, those feelings that you mentioned and young people feeling isolated, feeling alienated, feeling disconnected um, can exacerbate, particularly for some people, not for everybody, but for some people that can be a pathway into substance use. So we might see um, a greater trend there, Gene, as you know, as you're talking about uh, in, in using, um, I would say, particularly alcohol, marijuana for young people. And again, they, they tend to, you know, anything that grownups uh, tell kids, they discount. Um, and they tend to get information from very sketchy places on the internet, which is a lot of misleading information, as we all know. It's misleading, not all misleading, but um, uh, there's a lot of very misleading and, and positive, all positive aspects about uh, marijuana, but none of the negative on, online, which they tend to, of course, attend to. Yeah, that the, the ability for young people to be able to look at media and, 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 and look at it in a, in a way that is that they can discern what's good and useful information was not is, is a real challenge um, in this day and age where there's so much exposure to so many different things and they don't know who is you know a, a reputable source and who's not and so that whole piece about media literacy and making sure that our, our young people are literate and, and they know how to use um, those resources is incredibly important. Um, but I, I know that we can get on a soapbox about that. But So let's go back to uh, talking about uh, drinking and teenagers, but with a little bit more of a twist and specifically as it relates to teenagers who drink at home with their parents or caregivers. And there was like, there was an article in JAMA last June that looked at this and it saw that about 16% of parents who um, have older adolescents in the home went from a zero tolerance policy to allowing them to drink at home. And then 63% of them allowed both siblings. And so with the average age of the older one being 16 and the younger one being 13, allowed for both siblings to, to drink at home, which raises concerns about you know, how early, which is what you spoke to several times, uh, you, know, you initiate alcohol use and this flexibility around alcohol use and the risk this imposes this poses to the kids. So I guess I'm curious to hear what your thoughts about are about drinking with teenagers at home, because we do know that in other cultures, it's not uncommon. So how, how do we, I guess, reconcile this or think about this um, as it relates to, to young people? And how do we compare to, you know, the young people in Europe where this, there, there is this apparent kind of flexibility and acceptance at an earlier age before 21? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, of course, again, I, I, I think if, if parents are introducing alcohol or exposing alcohol, uh, young people to alcohol in the home, I think along with that, of course, again, the toxicity is in the dose. Um, a little bit uh, of alcohol is not going to do much harm. Um, the, the question is, uh, you know what's going along with that is the, is there is the messaging along with exposure um, around these these aspects of what alcohol is what it can do I think that that parents have a powerful role to play um, to give young people the truth about what alcohol is they should know of course now society societally we are uh, again a little bit in denial about alcohol because it, it's a common, it's a domesticated drug, and we don't like to think about it as a drug, right? Because we talk about alcohol and drugs. But we don't want to talk about alcohol as being a psychoactive, addictive drug. Um, and so 
there's, there's a kind of a, we all want to think about it, talk about it, and anything that's there for a drug, we can make that illegal, and then we can demonize people who use drugs, quote unquote drugs, while we're happily taking drugs ourselves in the form of alcohol, um, but not calling it a drug, because it's not a, you know, in, in, in the societal sense, we can we can um, be in denial like that and call it, uh, not refer to it as a drug when it is, of course. Um, so um, I think it's important to ensure that uh, uh, that parents know and understand what it is, what it does. Uh, the, the kind of facts that we're talking about here today are important for everybody to know. People are often surprised to hear that 75% of addiction cases are alcohol. They're surprised to know, even primary care doctors are surprised to know that alcohol is a level one carcinogen in the same category as asbestos and tobacco smoke. That's been established since 1988 by the International Agency for Cancer Research and the World Health Organization. And yet, a lot of people don't know that, interestingly, that it's a level one carcinogen. Surprising, isn't it? It's surprising that we don't have on our alcohol containers that alcohol is a level one carcinogen. Just 20 grams of alcohol, that's less than one and a half drinks a day, increases breast cancer risk in women by 20% relative to women who don't drink. How many women know that? How many primary care doctors know that? Why don't we have that as a label on alcohol containers? Interesting. Uh, again, the, the addiction example, why don't we have the alcohol can cause addiction, just like coding can cause addiction. Uh, so again, it, it's, it's, it's relaying that information, isn't it, to parents who become informed and hopefully can tell the next generation about the nature of alcohol and what it can and, and does do, because without it, we're just going to create more and more addiction cases. Again, right now, 75% of addiction cases are alcohol. Alcohol addiction starts in those teenage years. The roots of addiction start in early exposure. Only 4% of people become addicted who start drinking at age 21, relative to 25% of those who begin before age 15. So, John, I have two questions. One is, you know, we look at tobacco as kind of being a gateway drug. Do you see alcohol as being a gateway drug or or an entity into itself? That's the first question. And then I'd like you to comment on uh, um, recovery, because you know I heard you on NPR, <laughs> and it, and uh, not that I was surprised, but one of the things that you pointed out was that there is a myth that um, people don't recover from addictions, and your argument, I believe, was that the vast majority of people actually do recover. So, so one, maybe you could comment on the gateway aspect, and then maybe the other thing you could comment on would be is, is, is the recovery. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, it, it, the gateway question is an interesting one. I think generally that what we see when we look at trajectories um, of exposure to different drugs including nicotine and alcohol, um, there is the, 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 uh, the question of accessibility, availability and accessibility. With tobacco, less so with tobacco now, but still with alcohol, is it's easy to get. 
It's easy to get most, a lot of parents have alcohol at home, so it's easy to get that. They may be uh, modeling it, you know, using it um, maybe casually, maybe in non-harmful ways, maybe in harmful ways. But um, accessibility and availability mean that oftentimes it's, it's, and it's socially sanctioned. So alcohol is stigmatized, but it's less, far less stigmatized than illicit drugs, because those are drugs, real drugs, as we I would like to think about them. And alcohol is not a real drug, right? As I mentioned, and we like to think of it not as a drug. So for, for that reason, it's a gateway in the sense of it's often the first drug that people, psychoactive drug, uh, that causes intoxication. Nicotine does not cause intoxication. Um, alcohol does. That people can get high from, get a real deep feeling of euphoria, disinhibition, anxiety reduction, all the things that the human brain likes to experience they can get from that. And for certain people, that can lead to other drug use, or of course it can lead to addiction on that drug itself, on alcohol itself. Uh, sometimes people co-use a substance to offset the negative effects of high levels of intoxication, a classic one is alcohol and stimulants, for example. So people will use stimulant to offset the sedative effect of a sedative drug like alcohol. So they would take cocaine or amphetamine, and that becomes a cofactor or co-use, and they can develop a, a pattern of heavy use of stimulants in addition to, so that can lead to a drug which is not accessible, not available, not socially sanctioned, but they have to buy illegally, like cocaine. So then that can lead to two problems in that sense. In terms of recovery, uh, here's, are we going to turn to a hopeful note? Uh, yes, uh, I was, you know, and I, and I founded and, and directed the Recovery Research Institute in an attempt really to elucidate and uncover uh, some more facts about remission and recovery and the prevalence of recovery. And we've done a national recovery study on a nationally representative sample of the U.S. adult population to understand more about the prevalence of recovery and the pathways that people follow into recovery. The good news is, and I'm not discounting here, as I've mentioned already, the hundreds of thousands of deaths attributable to alcohol and opioids. Um, but most people who have a substance use disorder, an alcohol or other drug use disorder, will eventually recover. Now, the lifespan can still be shortened. In the case of alcohol use disorder, it's shortened by 30 years on average for people who have had a history of alcohol use disorder, on average. Um, uh, but most people will get into recovery from an alcohol or other drug use disorder. In fact, it's that same figure, 75%. I was talking about 75% in terms of the proportion of cases that's alcohol, of all the addiction cases. But 75% of people who meet criteria for an alcohol or other drug use disorder will achieve full sustained remission. It can take many years to get into remission. People can die, of course, along the way, as we've seen. But um, most people do eventually get into remission. That's the good news. And um, now uh, it can be a bumpy ride, of course. It can mean um, the onset of other comorbidities and diseases, um, but um, yeah, uh, and, the, and the different pathway, people follow different pathways into recovery. Many people with less severe problems manage to get into remission by themselves. Other people need help, so they seek out treatment, other medications, um, mutual help organizations to help them achieve and sustain it. Um, but the good news is we have a growing 
array of different recovery uh, options and treatments now that have emerged really in the last 50 years uh, since the birth of NIAAA and NIDA, those two institutes of health, which have really produced 90% of the world's knowledge on addiction and how to treat it. So we have more than any other time in history, particularly in the last 30 years, an array of effective treatment that can help people and recovery support services that can help people. There are many online resources also that people can access because stigma and discrimination, of course, can keep people away from treatment settings. So being able to go from your own home and dip your toe in the water, if you will, and understand, do some self-screening online, understand where you, where you lie on, on these different spectrums of, of, of um, alcohol and drug involvement and impairment, um, that's good news, isn't it? Um, because people now can have access to more information. They can get some feedback for themselves from their own home. That can help stimulate thoughts about change and, oh, I didn't realize I was that deep in it or, or there's things that I can do for my own home. I can do a checkup. I can do some skills training. I can understand more through the internet and through all the resources. So we've got a lot of resources and now the federal government is spending now a lot more uh, resources to look at not just how to achieve initial remission, but how to sustain it through uh, delivery of recovery support services in the communities in which people live. That, that's, really, that's really amazing and, and so nice to hear, especially in a world where there's such a poverty of resources for so many things. And, and not that we're, like you said, not going to stop sounding the alarm on, on this issue, which is such a big issue and, and has such a big impact on the life of young people and, and old people. Um, it is hopeful to hear that. One of the things we talk a lot about a lot um, at the Play Center is how to help people know what to look for because you don't know what you don't know. And so we like to provide that level of education. Um, so what would you tell a caregiver who suspects that they have a young person who's using? And I guess, actually, now that I say that, let me back up because sometimes you don't know that you, you, you're suspecting. And so I guess this is really even for someone who doesn't necessarily suspect that they have a young person using. But what would you say or what would you... What would you kind of share with us as some of the signs of, of a problem that maybe your young person's using? And I guess if you can, if you can kind of differentiate what that maybe would look like in a younger adolescent versus an older adolescent. And what we also really struggle with is with our kids who are away at college. And so how can we as caregivers and parents know what signs to look for? Yeah, I think, you know, I think any Obviously, if you see any intoxication, if you notice um, the smell of alcohol on somebody's breath, if you, you know, see changes in the social network. So if you, if you, if your, if your kids are now hanging around with people, and you don't know who those people are, that's a risk, a sign of risk. If you see, uh, you know, mood dysregulation, greater mood dysregulation. Those are signs, of course, teenagers are going through major changes. So, and it, and it can be very hard to tell what's attributable to alcohol or cannabis or another drug exposure. And young people are very good at not telling you the truth. Um, so, you know, just incredibly stark examples um, of that. As any parent, uh, I speak to parents oftentimes whose, whose kids are, have been troubled by substance use disorder and some of whom are in recovery now. But um, anyway, the, uh, 
so, you know, signs of, of uh, you know, mood dysregulation, of erratic behavior, of uh, coming home late, of uh, grades declining in school, behavioral problems in school, are all kind of red flags. It doesn't mean it's specific to substance, to alcohol use or other drug use. It does not mean that. But it's worth a line of questioning. Um, I don't want to sound like a police officer there, but uh, it, it, it's worth... In other words, it's worth talking to your child about it's worth this. A conversation. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, um, a, a conversation that that hopefully you know that we as, as parents can 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 hopefully begin to find a a place and a time that's that's good to talk about this with with young people frequently, um, because. You know, it, it can be the onset of an actual alcohol use disorder. It can mean that, again, independent of alcohol use disorder or alcoholism or, or alcohol addiction, you can still have major accidents, injuries, drownings uh, attributable to alcohol. This is a very common one for young people, drowning, uh, being drunk and drowning. Um, so all of these things, accidents that happen, uh, crashing cars, uh, dying in car accidents, just falling down the stairs, falling out of a window. All of these things happen when people are intoxicated, young people in particular. So anyway, making sure that the lines of communication are open, I, th I would say prophylactically throughout the teenage years because that's the highest risk for onset of, the, of these, uh, particularly alcohol and now cannabis, uh, to, to, to have those lines of communication open, talk about it openly, um, inquire about it, and, and um, look for signs of, you know, erratic behavior, internalizing, externalizing problems. It doesn't mean it's specific, but it's worth worth a conversation. And maybe, and maybe, John, uh, as we wrap up, starting young, uh, you know, I've got a number of grandchildren, preschoolers. Mm -hmm. um, it's so rare that we talk about about substance use. It's so rare that we talk about alcohol and and, and other drugs. And perhaps starting these conversations early won't seem like the Spanish Inquisition, as it were, mm -hmm. for, for teenagers who just hate, you know, this kind of thing. But if it becomes part of the fabric of the family, that we mm -hmm. talk about mm -hmm. what we eat, what we put in our bodies, what the risks mm -hmm. and dangers are, and maybe maybe that's a, a good way to do things. Is, mm -hmm. uh, what mm -hmm. do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. And again, it's, it's kind of, it's the, oftentimes it's the discomfort level of the parents, isn't it, that, you know, we're, we're not, all that comfortable talking about these these things. Uh, some are more comfortable than others, but it's it's kind of thinking about our, our familial mores and things that we we in culture, you know, has that historically been? Is that what my parents did? Uh, we might have to break that pattern. That's hard. Um, it can be hard to do that. But when you think about the prevalence of these disorders, particularly as Young people get to age 18. Between the ages of 18 and 25, we see a tripling of substance use disorder. It's by far the most prevalent type of psychiatric disorder among young people. It, it's three times the rate of older adults in that, in that period of 18 to 25. That's when young people are using the most alcohol and other drugs and are more likely to suffer from a substance use disorder. Right at beginning at age 18, it peaks actually right around age 20. And interestingly, and we, we have to wrap up, but, but those are the years that kids or young people leave home. 
Uh, so, so the question, I think we could maybe have another podcast at some point in time is what do we need to provide our young people in terms of mentoring, in terms of groups, in terms of, you know, 12 step programs, in terms of education, you know, when they're out on their own, um, and they don't have adult supervision. I mean, you know, yeah, this is the uh, biggest risk, yeah. yeah, because, you know, the brain doesn't fully develop until 26 and, and we assume that 18 means you're an adult and you can kind of fly solo. Well, <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's what I always thought when I was a kid, but that was true in your case. But in most <laughs> cases, um, that's not true. Yeah. Well, anyway, so this has really been helpful. Um, and to wrap up on a positive note, well, we actually did. Um, but let's let's make it even more positive, John. What's something you're looking forward to this week? Ooh. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to see my dad at the weekend, so that'll be nice. Um, haven't seen him for a while, so that, that'll be nice to go see him. Is he across the pond or is he here? Actually, he's down in the Bahamas. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. That's another so, pond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, get to see him and get some warm weather too. <laughs> so. And Khadija, how about you? I will be seeing my niece and my nephew this weekend, which I'm super excited about because, you know, I am one of five and there are four girls and a boy. All of us all have had boys until Denise, who just got here last year. So I'm excited to, to have a little girl to like hang out with, although she's one and she probably won't want to be bothered with me, but it's going to be nice to, to be in the presence of a, of a little girl. <laughs> and we almost had the same birthday. That's another side note. So what about you? Do you have anything exciting coming up this week that you're looking forward to? Uh, n- not that I know of, but <laughs> <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a day uh, in the life of you is exciting. But I, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to, as I was saying in the beginning. Uh, you know, uh, I'm on this incredible, intensive, like learning curve with with music, and um, it, it's um, it's really rewarding. I must say, um, uh, and and I, I look forward to being more frustrated because the more frustrated I get, the more um, I get ready for a breakthrough. So. That's what I'm, I'm looking forward to. So thanks, everybody. Um, uh, we hope that our conversation helps you have yours. I'm Gene Bereson. I'm Katie Jabez Watkins. 